This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. This is the summer series for Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio, where we bring you the best shows of 2017. For more information, head to bze.org.au. Or, if you're listening through 3CR, 8.55am, please don't touch that dial. Enjoy the program. Claire Westwood is in Penang. She's a researcher on food and agriculture with the Third World Network. She has been building community resilience for climate change in India, Philippines and Bangladesh. And at present, she heads the Justice and Peace Commission in the Penang Diocese of the Catholic Church of Malaysia. When we came back from our holiday in Malaysia, listeners, everybody wanted to know about the wonderful food we'd eaten. I think all my friends must be foodies. And indeed, we did have some lovely food. But tonight's theme is about a different aspect of food, not having enough, not being able to grow it in the traditional way, and the fear that climate change is already starving a lot of people. So, Claire, thank you very much for speaking to us from Penang. You have had such a wealth of experience in Asia. Can you tell us first about a typical farming community that you've worked with in Asia and how climate change is affecting them? Um, I basically worked with, co- with groups that worked with uh, rural farming communities. So, for instance, when I went to India, um, I met communities who told me that the rains and the patterns of, of rains had changed. Example, the monsoons did not come at the expected time. The rains were, were different. Uh, they told me there were 17 kinds of rain before, and the wrong rain at the wrong time would affect the harvest. Um, in other places, uh, vegetables would produce black fruit or would wither and die. Uh, for forest gatherers, uh, like women whom I accompanied into the forest, they go there every day to collect food and to collect edibles and other non-timber forest products like leaves and shoots that they would sell. Uh, they were increasingly finding less forest produce, and this affected their food security and livelihood directly. Um, so this would be a typical example of a rural community where climate change was making it harder for them to to be food secure. And how did you work with them? Um, my work involved working with the NGO who was working with the poor communities, um, and who wanted to start working on climate change. So my job was to facilitate the process of getting staff members and communities to understand what climate change and its impacts were, what the implications and challenges for rural communities were, and how to build community resilience. So for the organizations, it would involve uh, capacitating them to facilitate the process with their target communities. 
For the communities, it was for them to run the process themselves with the help of the NGO. So I would first meet with the organization. We would have workshops. And then we would together engage the communities to see if they wanted to take up work on, on building resilience. And if they did so, then we would do with them a resilience assessment to assess where they were in terms of resilience and vulnerability and what action uh, they wanted to take to improve their resilience. Um, and the way we interacted with them, the way we, we facilitated this process was simple. It was participative. We would use role play charts. We did not use, for instance, PowerPoint. Yeah. And the communities were always excited and empowered when they finally understood the truth about climate change and that, you know, there was something they could do about it. Well, um, this is a abs- bit abstract for me, the resilience. I, I would like to know what could they do? What were the practical steps they could take? The resilience assessment would be dif- involve different sectors. So they would seek to, uh, to see where they were weak and try to improve that. For instance, um, the farm design was the farm designed in a way that made them more exposed, for instance, to climate hazards, example, strong winds, storms, uh, cyclones, uh, floods, or they would, we would look at their technological capital, how, how much biodiversity there was on the farm, mm-hmm. how many different kinds of crops they were growing, and whether they could grow more. Could, for instance, if there was a shortage of water, then would, would it mean that they would have to think about growing crops that needed less water, example, millet. Uh, it would also involve their social capital, which is a very important aspect of resilience. Uh, that is, how organized were they, how um, empowered were they, how self-confident. Did women play a very strong role? Because we, have, we see communities where women play a very strong role. They are stronger, they're more resilient. Uh, what was happening with their youth? How yes. was their benefit-sharing processes? Things like that. Right. Well, you know, the Green Revolution promised to feed millions of people. And I imagine that the people who benefited from the Green Revolution were not these small farmers, but bigger farmers who could afford the investment or those who've survived the Green Revolution. But meantime, there was, there's been famine still that hasn't been eradicated by the Green Revolution. And you've written quite a bit about explaining it. I learned quite a lot from your articles about what the Green Revolution involved. And you said that there was a food crisis in 2008 and one billion people went hungry worldwide. But in the same year, the profits of fertiliser and seed companies increased by 70%. In other words, they raked in trillions while other people were experiencing extreme hunger. So at that level now, we talked about the local village level, but now at the big level of corporations, what needs to change? The Green Revolution is essentially failed. I mean, if you if you want an expert verdict, uh, look at the ISTAT, that is the International Assessment of uh, Agricultural Knowledge, Science, Science and Technology for Development, it was put together by 400 experts across the world, funded by World Bank, FAO, and so on. It came out in 2009, and they said that business as usual was not an option, and this toxic model of agriculture which focused, which focused only on productivity was actually detrimental, and that small agroecological farms were the way forward. And since then, I mean, there's been a lot more attention worldwide about agroecology, that has to be the way forward, but agroecology not as a technology, but as a movement uh, based on food sovereignty, putting people at the center, putting small farmers at the center. That has to be the only way forward because the industrial model of agriculture is essentially a failed system and it, it actually contributes to climate change. 30% of greenhouse gas emissions come from the industrial um, model of agriculture and mm. they only supply 30% of the food on 70% of the land, whereas the peasant uh, uh, food web 
supply 70% of the world's food on only 25% of arable land. Yes, well, you, you've written a lot about food sovereignty, and I think you could just define that as people being able to control enough food for them to eat. And that was the title of one of your talks you gave in Indonesia. But I'm worried yeah. about how can people have food sovereignty when countries like China are buying up land in other, other countries like in Africa to grow food for their home population. And I wonder how those local people can ever have any sort of food sovereignty if they don't have ownership of the land. That's the, that's been the fundamental fight, you know, uh, against land grabbing and for what we call genuine agrarian reform. The food soft movement has been fighting for this all over the, in Latin America, in Asia. Um, this land grabbing it's a major problem across the world. It's really a violation of the right to land, and um, well, it is a fight, Vivian, you know, mm. because small farmers are having to stand up and fight against this huge governments and against huge companies taking over their land. And governments are basically selling out their people, but when they lease out land like this for not just uh, for food, but also for plantations, for cash crops, for logging, you know, it's the same scenario. Mm. The, the people, are, I mean, they stand up and fight back. And that's what it, it is now. That's the way it is now. People are fighting back on their own aided by, yes, uh, you know, NGOs and so on. But it's really a very unequal fight. Yes. I, well, I've realised from the research I've done for this program that there's a big fight. And I read about at the Paris Climate Conference, I had heard about groups, you know, putting out the red line against the coal companies and coal-fired power and all of that. But uh, apparently groups like Via Campesina and Grain I presume those are the NGOs you're talking about. They tried to expose the industrial food system and said that they are blocking the, that, that industrial food chain is blocking the path of climate resilience. And they said we could halve greenhouse ga gas emissions within a few decades if we redistributed the land to small farmers. And they said small farmers will enrich the soil and grow a diversity of crops and indigenous communities will preserve the forests. And they symbolically attacked the industrial food system in Paris by painting a red line outside one of the biggest food and water corporations called Danone. And I, I wondered, did any of those demands that those uh, NGOs made get into the international agreement at Paris, the climate agreement? Not that I know of. I mean, directly. It's basically, um, I think the Paris agreement are really very broad lines about what countries would do to mitigate. And, of course, there is this commitment to adaptation, right? That would maybe possibly come under adaptation, like if they would change their land use patterns, uh, change their model of agriculture. It, I think they're leaving it to countries to take up, take it up on their own, mm. so that and then they would put it under the banner of adaptation, you know, and get money for that or apply for money for that. Well, uh, you know, are those NGOs mobilising? Is it is it an equivalent movement to the great big movement that we've now got against coal and gas and oil? Is it similar, you know, in mobilizing people? Mobilizing people on the ground, yes. I wouldn't really say it's gone up. It, it's been very successful at the policy level. Of course, the fight, the fight is there and the fight it always goes on, but they don't seem to be listening. No. I mean, the CBD, for instance, yeah, there's a lot of good NGOs there that lobby, you know, uh, against deforestation and, and, and everything else. And that fight seems to be ongoing all the time. So really, the movement is strong. But it's very much at ground level. So people are just doing it. It's, it's more an autonomous, it's autonomous action. I, 
I don't see much at the policy level really for you know major major changes. Maybe Latin America, yes, it's a little bit more advanced agroecology. Mm. Uh, but in other places, I would say it's it's still largely autonomous. It's really the people you know taking action themselves. It's really the movement on the ground. Mm. It's funny. It. It's funny you say that because tonight we interviewed an Australian farmer who's got this pioneering method of uh, crop growing, and there's no inputs. You know, no fertilizer much, and not much um, herbicide. And he says the same thing that the government and even the scientists seem to be blocking these ideas, but they are doing it. So farmers are just networking among themselves and internationally, yeah. and they're just putting it into. Well, I appreciate the. One thing that troubles me, though, this business about big industrial size farms, I, I have never actually seen a farm like that, but I've seen films, you know, gigantic harvesters, monocrops, you know, and the harvesters going up and down, getting huge amounts of wheat or corn. And I appreciate that traditional small farms are still feeding 70% of the world. As, as you said before, 70% mm-hmm. of our food comes from those small, diverse farms. But, but isn't there still room for those big monoculture farms to feed the number of people who've now moved to the cities and the future world population, really? No, I, I would say I'm a real, I'm a real diehard fan huh? of agro-eco- small agroecological farms. I really, really, these large monocultures, they don't work within. Mm. I mean, we've had what, how many, 19, since this 19, late 1950s, 1960, the Green Revolution, mm. until now, and they've obviously failed, and they're so, they're not efficient, they're not resource efficient, they're not biodiverse, so monocultures, whether they're plantations or whether they're crops, they really are counter counterproductive, they're counter, they're not ecological, they don't bring the benefits that they, they promise to bring, and there's been so much evidence that they don't work. Mm. So I would say really that, you know, going back to small resource efficient farms that are low carbon, uh, there's low reliance on external inputs. That's really the way forward because we will, we are running out of resources. We cannot sustain this mechanized kind of uh, industrial model of agriculture. It's, it's just, I mean, maybe it, it, it's for big farmers in America and in the big rich countries, but you know, as, as we can see, they're not really feeding the world. No. they, As you said, they feed only 30%. And then I was horrified to read yes. in your articles that they use up 80% yeah. of the world's arable land and water. And yes. that accounts for 50% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. And meanwhile, they're deforesting 13 million hectares each year. And the trillions are going to Syngenta and DuPont and Monsanto and Dow. But yeah. the, the others, the, the majority world, is actually being impoverished. So I am convinced. By those figures. So that was Claire Westwood. She's a researcher on food and agriculture with the Third World Network. Yeah. Let's talk about the the contrast. You know, what are the people doing on the ground? What are the what are the best ways for small these smaller style farmers to reduce emissions in Asia in tropical landscapes? What are, what are the best methods that you've seen? Um, you know, innovative things. Diversification, composting. Seed conservation, crop rotation, mixed cropping, intercropping, agroforestry. These are not really new, but they seem to be because, you know, we've been already, the world has sort of been brainwashed that the industrial model is the model. So these, these, uh, little, these agro ecological systems are coming back and getting a lot of dependence, getting a lot of um, attention, getting a lot of uh, success as well. Yes. Right? And so um, uh, they, they work. I mean, one very good example I can give you is Masipag in the Philippines. Yes. Uh, it's also in my article, but they have like 35,000 ecological farmers. Mm-hmm. 
And over the last 30 years, they've produced 2,000 of their own rice varieties with about 70 farmer rice breeders. So they have proven that ecological agriculture works mm. and they sustain and they very con- they are very confident. They have very strong social capital. They invest a lot in the, in people empowerment. And I think that's really the key to sustainable agriculture, which, you know, when you take it as a, if you work it as from a very academic, scientific, scientific, technological yes. angle, you omit the, the importance of social capital and why these small farms and communities work so well. It's because they have very strong social capital. And I, I gather that that sort of farming would require more people. I mean, those big agro farms, industrial organized farms, they just have one guy on a tractor and a few people at harvest time, but it's not intensive, lab, labor intensive, but these smaller farms seem to have need a lot more people. Is that why they're more empowering? Not really. I wouldn't really say that. I say they're empowering because the farmers are real farmers. They're innovative. They find solutions on their own. They see what works and they really work with the land. You know, there is no one size fits all kind of, um, uh, there, there is no, when they look at problems, they don't see it in isolation. The way they look at the, at the system holistically. As for labor, well, it's also a misconception that uh, small farms use a lot of labor. They're very labor intensive. They do, yes, certain times during the growing season, yes. For yeah. instance, weeding, yes, there is a little bit more work. But then, you know, um, they don't have a problem with labor anyway in the in rural Asia. They don't have a problem. But it's not all the time. I mean, I've talked to a farmer where he says I'm very free after the initial planting and so on. He says then I'm very free. <laughs> you know, so it's really how good you are uh, mm. at managing your farm. So do you see in these countries where you've worked that they're, despite this big sort of monstrous industrial power, you know, as you said, it's a very unequal fight. Do you see these smaller, this style of farming is fighting back, is gaining traction, that people are getting behind that, they're getting more confidence in that rather than saying, oh, I just need to get more expensive fertilizer and more what they're selling me. Is there more confidence developing in this being the right way to go? Where there's strong networking, yes. Where these farms and farmers network with one another or they belong to a coalition or they belong to, well, any, any kind of, uh, even a, just an informal network, they tend to sort of, they tend to grow better. It's difficult for isolated farmers trying to do this alone. Yes. Then, then, then I hear stories of where, you know, where one single farmer is trying to go it alone and then everyone around him are conventional farmers who tell him that it won't work, you mm. can't farm without pesticides and so on. So that networking where, where you find farmers that work together, then there is strength and they, they, there's sustainability and the movement does grow. Mm-hmm. I would say, yes, it's growing. Uh, the movement is growing. But to be realistic, also, there is a large proportion of farmers out there who are still very much green revolution farmers, not because they want to, but they, some, they just don't know any other way. So, yeah, we, we, the, the movement is seeking to reach out to these other farmers because when they find that eventually all these fail, chemicals are failing, and nothing works anymore, then they look to their neighbours and see how come he's not using chemicals but his farm is doing better than mine. Well, look, I'd just like to finish with something from the Pope. Um, I was in East Timor a few years ago and I was, it was such a hot day and I wandered into a Catholic church and the, men, the priest was reading a letter in a very animated way and, and the people were just listening to him. It wasn't a church service. He was just, it was a Saturday afternoon and later on I, he came into the cafe where we were and, and I spoke to him and he, I said, what was that letter you were reading? You, everyone was very excited by what he said. Oh, the, it's the Pope. It's the Pope. He's sent us a letter, and I'm telling the people excellent information in this letter about um, uh-huh. our lives. And back in Australia, Australian Catholics were very a bit more blasé about it, I think, to tell the truth. They weren't 
getting so much on board. But this Laudato Si, I think it may have caught on a lot more in poorer countries because the Pope seemed to be so I thought he was very trenchant. You know, he came up with scathing criticism of the greed and the um, the, the, the sort of corruption in, involved in, yes, and the corporations. And I've got a quote here from him. He said, in, the Pope said, global, we need a global consensus to plan a sustainable and diversified agriculture. A true ecological approach is to hear both the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor. Now, you're working with an organisation called the Penang Justice and Peace Commission. Can you tell us how that translates into action on the land with organisations like that, you know, that sort of peace and justice framework? The commission that I work with is an Episcopal Commission for justice and peace in the countries of Malaysia, Singapore and Brunei. It was formed in 2013 and they've taken up the call for, you could call it creation justice or ecological justice, uh, which incorporates what you just read out, listening to the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor. The Pope calls for integral ecology, brings together environmental ecology, social ecology, cultural ecology of daily life, technological uh, ecology and so on. And so this commission that I'm, I'm working with now will be devoted to this, to really putting Laudato Si into action and beyond. Because Laudato Si, to me, it's a platform. It's a platform he's given us. It's a launch pad from which you can learn more, you can you can interact more, you can do so much more. But he's given us this launch pad to go out there and really, you know, raise ecological awareness, calling for, he calls for an ecological conversion. And so our activities will be around, we'll be doing that. We're firstly awareness raising and maybe... Uh, even setting up farms where young people can go and become one with the land, you know, to bring back that, that what he calls ecological spirituality. And I think ag- traditional agriculture had a very strong spirituality with the earth, and we need to bring that back. That's wonderful. So that was Claire Westwood. She's a researcher on food and agriculture with the Third World Network. And as you heard, she's working on uh, community resilience in the Justice and Peace Commission in the Penang Diocese of the Catholic Church in Malaysia. Welcome back to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. In this program about food security, the next guest is Alan Broughton. He is the author of a new book called Sustainable Agriculture vs. Corporate Greed. He says that at the global level we produce enough food to feed the present world population and even to 2050. It's just a matter of distribution. So enjoy. Alan Broughton is the co-author of a new book called Sustainable Agriculture vs. Corporate Greed. He's had a long association with the Organic Agriculture Association and is their vice president. He's travelled widely and researched soil carbon sequestration. So welcome, Alan, to the Beyond Zero Emissions show. Thank you. Listen, Alan, we have many listeners and sometimes they contact me and ask me to report more on the big picture. And your book gives a lot of information about the world picture of agriculture. And I see in the book two competing forms of agriculture one I would call agrochemical farming, using a lot of fertiliser and pesticide, and it has a high cost for the climate. And the other type of agriculture is, you call it, agroecology, and it's usually on smaller, more labour-intensive farms. And my first question is, how, how do they compare in production of food? Well, very similar, actually. Um, yes, a good agroecological agro-ecolo- system can produce the same amount of food as a, as a chemical one, but without the side effects. 
Well, that's a short answer. That's good. But the yields from the Green Revolution were trumpeted and they were initially so high. Isn't that, that industry still trying to tell us that they can feed the world? Well, the, the yields were high initially, but because they required a lot of uh, chemical fertiliser and they were very prone to pests and diseases and required a lot of uh, pesticides, then over time there's been so much damage done to the the soil that the production has gone down and in northern India now a lot of farmers are going back to the original varieties because they are far more resilient. Yes and I noticed in your book that Indonesia has banned a lot of pesticides and stopped subsidising them. Yes, yes, quite a few countries have stopped subsidising them. It was interesting in Indonesia that when they did drop the subsidies the yields actually went up because people stopped using they couldn't afford the, the uh, pesticides so much and there was an increase in yields because there was less pest attack. There's, there's a direct correlation between pesticide use and pest attack. In fact, pests, pesticides create pests just like herbicides create weeds. It, they're no solution at all. Mm. So the only solution is to redesign the system so that you have a, a balanced ecosystem and the predators take care of the pests and you have good soil fertility that produces plants that are just not attractive to pests and diseases. Right, but well, nitrate fertilisers really stimulate pests and diseases. Yeah. They make the, the growth really sappy and they increase the amino acids at the expense of proteins and they make, it makes very, very attractive and digestible food for the, for the pests and diseases. Well, I'd like to know, you know, our program is called Beyond Zero Emissions and so we're really focusing on the climate impact of various types of um, work in the land sector and I'd like to know how does agroecology compare to agrochemical farming in those external costs to the climate like greenhouse gas emissions and soil carbon loss? Okay, yeah, it's quite a complex question. I'll just try and answer it reasonably simply. Um, one of the biggest causes of, uh, from agriculture of greenhouse gases is nitrous oxide. And most of the nitrous oxide in the air is coming from agriculture. And that is largely from nitrate fertilisers like urea, uh, sulphate of ammonia, ammonium nitrate and, and all those different kinds of nitrate fertilisers that are used so much. Um, a lot of that is it's not used by the plants and it just goes up into the air as nitrous oxide and it is a really serious pollutant. But at the same time, nitrogenous fertilisers burn up uh, carbon out of the soil. They stimulate particular bacteria and those bacteria when they start running out of food, they attack the humus. Normally, microbes don't attack humus. Humus is a very, very stable form of carbon in the soil. But uh, with, when you use a lot of nitrate fertilisers, the, the opposite happens. With agroecology, then um, soil carbon is built because uh, there's a lot of organic matter being returned to the soil uh, and there's no... Um, there's no chemical inputs that are going to upset the soil biology 
um, and, and prevent the, uh, the humus from forming. Right. Well, look, now I'd like to go back to that international picture that is a, a big focus in your book. Um, look, a few days, a few years ago, I just remembered in preparing this interview, I interviewed some African women farm workers, and they were living amidst plenty, but they couldn't feed their own families. And all the farms pro- produced, all the farms' produce was exported to Sainsbury's in England, and it had a very high carbon footprint. Those women managed to get some improved conditions. They were telling me they got protective gloves and they got a field toilet from Sainsbury. I think they took Sainsbury's to court. But they had even had to start growing food for themselves on the side and they formed an agricultural co-op. But they had noticed that climate change was causing unpredictable seasons and they were still insecure for food. So how typical is this in your travels and your knowledge of the world? Well, wherever... People who used to have grow their own food, when they become employees, their nutrition always goes down because their wage is never enough to buy the fruit and vegetables that they need. So what people tend to do is that they buy the cheapest food and that's the carbohydrates. It might be maize or it might be cassava or, or flour, that sort of thing. And there's always a decrease in people's nutritional levels. Um, and when um, big companies take over uh, land in in Africa and uh, Southeast Asia and other parts, they want to grow cash crops for export. And so people who used to be able to grow on their own land no longer have that opportunity and their standard of living really plummets because they, um, they just... Uh, they don't have the the ability to feed themselves properly. Um, the majority of food in in the world is produced by small farmers, and uh, we should be supporting them and rather than encouraging um, large scale production. Mm. Everywhere in the world where there's food exported in a large scale, it it doesn't. Um, it doesn't improve the food security of that population. Mm. Even in Australia, we've got 10% of the population which is food insecure, and there's plenty of food produced here. Yes. In fact, there's plenty of food produced for everybody in the whole world. There's enough produced to feed the expected population in 2050. Um, So production is not the problem. It's distribution of that production. It's an economic issue and a social issue, but it's not a production issue. So all of these uh, governments and corporations that go on about the need to increase food supply, it's, it, it's just rubbish it's mm. because it does not get to the people who really need it. Well, yes, I note in your book um, many countries with severe hunger are food exporters, and one example was Kenya, which is supplying beef to Europe, and I just thought of Kenya, it's so much in the news at the moment, there's thousands of refugees, famished and famine-ravaged people um, from Sudan who um, are fleeing there, and they're in the news right now. We get this sort of media alert, red alert about famine when it's really too late, when really the whole thing should have been much more thought through before that. And I wondered, wondered how does climate change, which is sort of the big new threat of the 20th, 21st century. How does that focus our minds on food security for all nations? Uh, well, the climate change uh, it increases the, um, the erraticness of weather. 
So it increases droughts, it increases floods, and it changes the weather patterns. Um, in some parts of the world, it's expected that um, conditions will be improved with climate change because there might be better rainfall. But in a lot of other places, there will be a decrease in rainfall, as is happening in uh, parts of Australia, and 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 also an increase in the um, the reliability of, of the rain that does occur. It's more likely to occur in big, heavy amounts than it is in uh, in the, the previous, more regular ones. Mm. Um, now, the, the the best thing that that farmers or any food producers can do in order to um, to manage climate change is to increase the soil carbon content. That is really important because that gives the resilience. Mm. One kilo of humus holds four kilos of water. So you can drought proof your, your place and you can reduce runoff um, just by increasing the soil carbon and that's what we should all be working at mm. rather than using uh, agricultural techniques that destroy soil carbon. Mm. All right. Well, the next question's about research, and I think um, we know how research led to the Green Revolution and its increased yields, but I'm starting to come to the impression that sci the scientific establishment may now be causing farm practices that are contributing to climate change, and I'd like to know how can we reward scientists helping farmers adapt to climate change because that's one of the points in your book we need to re reward them differently than just the way it's happening now yes yes that's right um around the world now the majority of scientific research is funded by private corporations and of course they are doing it in their own interest and so they they need to make a profit from this research even our CSIRO now has to make a lot of its own money. It's not fully financed by the government as it used to be. So that means the CSIRO has to produce saleable technologies. And sustainable agriculture is not a, uh, not a, uh, a saleable technology. Um, yeah, therefore, it, it, it's not that we can blame the scientists. No. Um, it's... It's the funding of the scientists, yes. and we need to get back to publicly funded research that is focused on um, the environmental needs and the social needs that we have, rather than the needs of the big corporations. Yes, well, I think in your book, there was one terrific example. You said um, um, researchers will be researching, say, a product to control weeds, but there's no equivalent product profit for a farmer who invents a system that prevents the weeds. So, you know, if scientists could work with farmers, I'm sure the farmers would be very grateful and a lot of scientists would feel very um, much more ethically right in the, in the work they're doing. But just round the world, just to finish, Alan, I know there's a lot of resistance. I've heard a lot about La Via Campesina, which gets a lot of uh, peasant uh, agriculturists together with certain manifestos and demands um, there's permaculture, there's victory gardens in the suburbs and I liked one of the things you said that just came up out of Brexit in England where, okay, Brexit's happening and there's a group called the Land Workers Alliance and uh, they now see some opportunities for low-carbon farming. Would you just like to finish by telling us what the, you know, what kind of possibilities are opened up by that? 
Yes, there are organisations around the world that are working really hard and quite effectively in, in improving agricultural systems. We've got lots of them in Australia too. Um, and quite a lot of farmers are changing their, their systems. Um, yeah, it, it, it's difficult, but um, yeah, farmers need to be organised and organisations like La Via Campesina are wonderful. It's got 200 million affiliated members around the world. Um, even in the United States, um, it's, there's a, it's got a large number of people. I think there's, there's 50,000 members of the uh, National Farmers Union, which is a, a, an organisation of small farmers that is fighting the corporations. Unfortunately, in Australia, we don't have any affiliated organisation to the uh, La Via Campesina. Mm. It, it's something we need to be working on. Mm. All right. Well, thank you very much, Alan. The thing I liked about the Brexit people, the one the um, low-carbon farming, was that they were going to encourage a whole lot of new people coming into farming, you know, young people who might like to be on the land but can't possibly get into it, but to encourage new people. And I think that's a problem in Australia too with the average age of farmers being quite old. Oh, yes, that's important, but we need to have systems that allow them to get in. At the moment, land prices are just far too high, way beyond the productive capacity of that land. So we need systems of, uh, of uh, land, uh, sort of, like a system they have in, in, in Cuba, it's called usufruct. So you have the land, you don't have to buy the land, and you've got use of that land for as long as you keep using it. And if you stop using it or you use it badly, then you lose it. Um, but it means you don't have to outlay those millions of dollars in order to get into farming in the first place. Right. All right. Well, thank you very much, Alan. I know you're very busy doing your tour with your book. I'll tell the listeners again the name of the book. It's called um, uh, Sustainable Agriculture versus Corporate Greed. And we've just been speaking to Alan Broughton. And just recently we spoke to Elena Garcia, who's the other author. Thank you very much, Alan. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Are you wondering how to pay your donation? You can pay online by going to 3cr.org.au or call us on 94198377. You can also visit us in person at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy and pay by cash, cheque or FTPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277 Collingwood 3066. And be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. 3CR, Radio for Change. I came upon tonight's story when reading The Big Issue. I always buy it, and I don't always read it, I must say, but I was riveted by the March issue of this year's Big Issue because of two terrific um, writers there uh, under the title of Hotting It Up. And they're with us in the studio. Jane and I are here in uh, Fitzroy, and we've got Greg Foister and Maggie Barron. So, Greg, how are you? Very good. Thank you. And Mag uh, Maggie, how are you? Hi, Vivian. Well, thank you. Very welcome to come here. Uh, Maggie wanted to raise awareness about how heat waves can affect people with a psychiatric illness. So she's going to read us her story about her sister Katrina. It's extremely moving, and it illustrates exactly what can happen very quickly in a heat wave. 
Um, now, most of us know that climate change is intensifying heat waves and cyclones and everything, but I wonder how many of you realise that heat waves actually kill more people than cyclones, fires, bushfires and um, floods. Uh, Greg Foister has been re- researching that and he started his research on Australia Day. Greg, you describe people at a hot barbecue drinking diuretic beverages and pissing away every last drop of deference to the climate. Yes, yeah, so... I was looking at this study by Lucinda Coates, who's a professor at Macquarie University and has done a lot of research into natural disasters in Australia, particularly heat waves, and how they cause more deaths than all the other natural disasters combined. And in in her her, uh, most recent study, which showed that uh, extreme heat has been responsible for more than 4,500 deaths in Australia since since 1900, she actually found that the, the day when more people died than any other day in the calendar year was Australia Day. <laughs> and the reason is, um, sorry, no, it was the, the, day, the day after Australia Day, January 27. And the reason is that heat waves often claim lives uh, after the heat has dissipated, and that's because people's uh, you know, bodies break down and, and the full effect is felt afterwards. But on, on Australia Day, people are obviously getting pissed in the sun, and we, we really don't have enough deference to the climate in well, Australia. That made me think about the way the media behave. I don't think they're really very responsible because just around January we had an ambulance man. Do you remember, Jane? He came in here and he read out the list of ambulance cases they'd had in this heat wave and he said uh, one was an 80-year-old man who'd passed out on the golf course. Now, I think the media should have been telling a man to be like that. We sense, well, today is a really dangerous day for people, you know, don't go and do any big exertion like that. And I think the media um, just tell us a pretty story. What do you think? Well, we tend to get a mixed message about heat waves. So if you look at, for example, media coverage of cyclones or bushfires, the, the, the text will be saying this is a disaster and the photo will, that accompanies the, that message um, conveys the same attitude that this is something to be avoided. So you have uh, an image of a raging hot fire or uh, winds whipping through a town, devastating houses, destroying um, the environment. But if you see media articles on heat waves, you've often got the, the text telling people to be cautious and wary, and then you've got this lovely photo of bikini-clad women splashing around water and having a good time. So it's, it's not exactly sending the same message. And the reason for that is that heat waves are largely uh, invisible natural disasters. It's very hard to depict a heat wave other than a little bit of melting asphalt, which isn't exactly a sexy media image. So they don't tend to... Uh, garner the same response from the media uh, and it, it's also really ha- hard to quantify how many people have died and in, in previous heat waves like for example in 1995 heat wave in Chicago there was a question around well is there an adequate way of measuring how many people have died obviously health researchers will say that there is it's excess deaths but a lot of people don't still buy that they don't really understand that heat waves tend to affect um, elderly vulnerable people and that those deaths should still be counted they sh- you know, there's a there's a spike in deaths that has to be quantified, and it's more difficult than seeing somebody you know burnt alive or destroyed by a 
uh, cyclone. Well, that's why we're here today to dramatise it and, and, and make it less, more visible. It is an invisible killer, but to make it visible, and Maggie's story is going to really illustrate that in a moment. I notice the pictures they show here, yeah, the bikini clad and the evening picnics, and even I, when I'm here, or uh, I would go down to the water's edge if I could, and I'm perfectly mobile, but what about when I'm older, or if I have a chronic illness, or if I live far away from the sea that it just can't be bothered catching the train down to the to see uh, there are a lot of people like that and you mentioned about some suburbs are sort of heat collectors more you know inner city perhaps suburbs are heat generators you know they it's actually hotter to be there and some places to live are hotter so mm. what sort of um plans do you think say state government and local government need to put in place to help people like that who are actually trapped in the heat wave silent as it may be well when i was researching this story one problem that came up was that state governments and councils had plenty of plans for responding to the heat um, on a short-term basis so they'd send out information to people not that that information wasn't always read or accessible but they'd send it out but they weren't really planning on a long-term basis and um, upgrading housing stock or uh, making robust long-term national uh, heatwave response plans it was all very short-term uh, what you were saying before about suburbs is actually really interesting because most people know that there's something called an urban heat island effect, which means that if you're in a city, uh, the concrete and all the dark um, surfaces tend to trap in heat. But there's also an effect where some suburbs have much higher land surface temperatures during heat waves simply because there's less vegetation. Mm. And there's a correlation, uh, according to a CSIRO study, between those suburbs that have high land surface temperatures and low income um, people with disabilities, older people. So essentially the people who are most vulnerable to heat waves live in the suburbs mm. that have the highest land surface temperatures. Mm. It's a really big problem that's going to exacerbate into the future. We're not really doing enough about it. Right. Well, if you've just tuned in, listeners, we're talking about heat waves uh, with a writer called Greg Foister who published in The Big Issue. Uh, Greg, you give credit to, you know patchwork of things that are happening in various states but it seems very patchy and I'd like to know what in your estimation are the best interventions that a state government or a national government if we're moving perhaps to a national alert plan or assistance scheme you know we have flood prevention and fire bushfire prevention Mm. well this heat wave prevention um, what are the best elements of that? Well heat waves tend to disproportionately affect uh, mo- minority groups of people, um, elderly people, people with disabilities, um, actually ethnic groups as well in outer suburbs, and people on very low incomes. So any any plan to mitigate the effect of heat waves in terms of the number of deaths has to take that into account. And one of the best ways would be to retrofit uh, existing housing stock and to allow audits or, or to put in place audits of uh, people who have who are on low incomes and live in rental housing because often mm. it's people in rental housing who can't really afford to upgrade their homes, mm. um, and also looking at people who live in uh, boarding boarding houses. Oh. So uh, for this story, I actually had planned a four four thousand word story about heat waves, but there wasn't a really big heat wave in Melbourne during that period of research to to cover it in real time I suppose but I wanted to really get into boarding houses Mm. and it's very very hard um, because people aren't 
willing to talk about their their poor quality housing conditions. Mm. So if you're going to look at how do we stop the number of deaths mm. each year from heatwaves, we need to look at how do we treat vulnerable people, how do we improve their their quality of life and the houses that they live in? Well, I was very um, interested in the case you gave of someone who was living in council housing, but it was a high-rise, and um, his name was Bill McKenzie, the person you interviewed. I thought it was very enterprising. You really went around to a lot of different people, you know, scientific people and local people and all sorts of people to give a very wide coverage of this idea. It's not simple. Um, And Bill McKenzie, uh, he said he was feeling very anxious when they had these days of sort of accelerating, you know, day three, day four of a heat wave. It's probably not going to go past the end of the week, but he started getting very anxious. Why? Well, he lives in a housing... I don't want to say housing commission, but I don't know the PC word yeah. for it. Public uh, housing. A public housing, yeah. older person's high-rise facility, yeah. and the windows aren't allowed to be open past 12.5 centimetres in that, in that place. And when he sat through the heat wave in, in January last year, he recorded temperatures that were much higher than outside, uh, and it didn't get below 30 degrees during uh, four days including at 2 a.m., 3 a.m. So it's, it's well, well above the heat threshold that the health authorities would say is, is dangerous. Uh, and he's, this, this is a, an apartment complex that only has older people on low incomes. So it's particularly vulnerable for heat waves and for um, those people who are, are most affected by heat waves. So that needs retrofitting, doesn't it? With- it does, and it's, a, it's, it's one of so many. Yeah apartment blocks or or social housing complexes that need retrofitting so the government's got a big task ahead of it it is happening in some places i um spoke with mooney valley council about some of the uh retrofitting they were planning on doing and some of one of the projects that they were running in a flemington housing estate but they weren't quite ready to they didn't really have any data or anything to prove what they were doing but there are things happening on the ground. There's been a big change, I think, um, in the last couple of years. It's just taking a while for it to come through. I still don't think the state government is doing quite enough, but it is happening. There, there are some changes on the ground. Right. Well, the ambulance guy certainly told us, you know, at the other end, at the pointy end at the hospital emergency, they're finding these people who've expired who need not have died or nearly died or had heart attacks because exactly of those living conditions. Okay, well, we, um, we need to now talk to Maggie, but um, I'll come back to you, uh, Greg. Um, the aim of this radio show is to talk to people about um, in the community who are finding climate solutions and I think your article has been very helpful in you know canvassing some of those solutions and um, we'll talk a bit later about helping people like Bill survive so now we have Maggie here I'm really grateful for her to come Um, she um, is telling the story of her sister Katrina and it brings into close focus just how dangerous heat waves can be I was even surprised how that story evolved so would you Maggie thanks just read the story thank you happy to share the story on New Year's Day this year, I sat in my lounge room watching the weather report and my stomach clenched and my chest tightened. Predictions of 40 degree heat had a real visceral effect on me now because I know what can happen. My sister Katrina was a fun-loving and caring child, a good student and physically active. She went to a well-regarded school in Melbourne's leafy eastern suburbs before her first job at a major hospital. 
In her 20s, she went to university and studied social work before working in the field, helping young people at risk. When she was 24, she suffered a mental breakdown and was hospitalised many times over the next few years. And this was really a most awful time for those who loved her. Having a sister with mental illness is hard. Our older sister most eloquently described it as grieving the loss of the person you love every single time you see them. It took several years for her health to stabilise, but never to the point where she could work. During one hospital stay, she met Christopher. They formed a strong and loving relationship that would last the rest of their lives. Chris and Katrina's paranoia made living in shared accommodation challenging. Katrina badgered the mental health support people and through them convinced the Department of Housing to provide them with a small house in Melbourne's north, and there they built a stable home life. But because Katrina never shook the fear that they might be evicted at any time, she would never raise concerns about necessary repairs to the house. She ran the house and the budget, and she and Chris were always well presented and clean. Chris had been a chef in his youth, and they ate well. He did all the cooking because psychiatric medication caused my sister's hands to shake constantly. One Saturday in January last year, we went to the local park. I had a regular monthly visit with her, and I noticed how slow she'd become, and I suspected that the medication, which propped up her mental health, was also now sadly taking a physical toll. Her weight gain was obvious, but now her slow gait and tiredness were also visible, and her feet were grossly swollen. Chris was always by her side. He too had gained a large amount of weight over the previous decade and had a nasty smoker's cough. The following week promised to be a scorcher, 40 degrees each day with a late change promised on the Friday night. I spoke to Katrina three times that week and our sister visited her on the Thursday night. She said Katrina appeared to be in good spirits, although she was clearly struggling with the high temperatures. Their small house had no air conditioning, just fans. One of Chris's brothers was an, is an electrician and he'd offered to install an air conditioner at no cost. But Katrina's anxiety about damaging the property and being evicted, plus concern about running costs, prevented her from accepting it. Anxiety is a really common problem with people who have a psychiatric disorder. Being a large person, she was unable to soak in a bath, but took many cold showers to try to keep cool. The side effects of her medication didn't help. Even in winter, she needed to drink two or more litres a day of water to stay hydrated. On Friday night, the cool change swept through. I called Katrina but got no answer. Assuming she and Chris were out the back enjoying some respite, I let them be for the evening and called again the following day but still got no answer. Katrina had a history of paranoia and perhaps she was cranky after the heat and it wasn't uncommon for her to take the phone off the hook for extended periods. I tried again on Sunday with nothing and my husband agreed to drop by the next day. But on Sunday night, Chris's father called. Chris and his sister had been, my sister, had been found dead in their home. They died on the Friday. That was a Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Summer Special where we take some of our favourite programs from 2017. We'll leave you now with the sound of the lyrebird made famous by imitating other bird calls and sounds that it hears in nature. See if you can pick up on any of the other bird calls that it's imitating and have a happy and safe holiday. <laughs> 